0: I hope you guys will forgive me, because I feel like this is a weird movie to actually properly deconstruct in my usual fashion. So I'm actually doing things differently for once. Uh, I'm going to be talking about this film a little bit out of character from the behind the scenes, but only a little. Much less than I normally do. And then a decent amount in character, and then I'm basically going to be done. But I want to talk about a few things here. First off, let's lay down some ground rules. Star Trek 2009 sometimes referred to as just Star Trek, is a very polarizing film. I, uh, Amongst my friends and the Star Trek fans I've actually encountered, I haven't actually encountered arguments because, as I've said before, most Trek fans I've met are actually pretty awesome people. So even though we disagreed, we could discuss the matter and why we disagreed and how we felt and blah, blah, blah. But I mention this because even amongst us, and even amongst my personal fa- friends and whatnot, we were very polarized on this film. Some people really liked 2009. Some people really hated it. And a lot of people were pretty much right in the middle. It was like the full three-point uh, setup. You know, it was like... Ugh. I'm kind of in the middle. I still think this is a positive film. I'll go ahead and get that out there right now. This is still a net positive for me. But I do think it has some flaws. Most of which I put at the base of the script writers, which I'll talk about in a minute. But, um, for the most part, I do enjoy this film. So I just want to get that out there right now. And one other thing. I haven't had to mention this in a while, but I feel like this is a recent enough film, and I've seen enough internet vitriol about this film, to make something clear. If you want to bash me for my opinions on my videos, that's fine. I get that all the time. And most of the time, those, those comments are just deleted or otherwise removed from from the comment thing, either by me or by Google, but and, and it's kind of an automatic thing. Um, but if you want to start arguing amongst each other and actually start really yelling at each other and bashing each other, please don't do that. You want to yell at me? Sure. But you don't go after my viewers. That's always been my rule. So, just putting down the ground rule here, okay? Let's at least have some degree of respect for everyone's differing opinions, right? Which brings me to my next point. Why is it... I said this before. I believe this is a Star Trek film. And it's also an even Star Trek film, if you're paying attention. This is Star Trek 12. <laughs> Seriously, that that, the, that whole Galaxy Quest thing kind of works out, if you think about it. Because that makes Galaxy Quest Star Trek 10, a, a an even movie. That makes Nemesis 11, an odd movie. And next makes this one 12, and the next one 13. It all lays out, doesn't it? We'll see if that holds th- true in the next year. But anyways... It's just an appropriate thing. I don't think that's, like, valid. I just think it's funny. But this is Star Trek Twelve for all intents and purposes, at least in the way I tend to think of it mentally. So what we have here is a film that was very ambitious and very difficult to do and was handed to a director who basically didn't want to do it, but agreed to sign on it on a few provisos that, as it ended up, were not met. Uh, I mention this because this actually makes him very similar to another director in a basically the same uh, situa- set of situation, Michael Bay. I'm going to leave that discussion for my next video next week, so we're just going to leave that there. But I also mention this because Abrams, I will give the man credit, he walked into a thing which he didn't actually like. He was never really a Star Trek fan and said, okay, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to really push myself and try to pull what I believe is the essence of Star Trek into my new film. And I think he succeeded. Star Trek, for me, has always been about a few core ideologies. I've talked about this before. Heavy character focus, heavy character-centric stories, lots of emphasis on the ideology and the... uh, Not ideology, excuse me, wrong word. um, Idealism. And the optimism of Star Trek, even when things are the darkest, I've talked about this before, even when things are terribly dark in Star Trek, there's always that optimism that things will, and indeed do, get better. That, uh, that enthusiasm, that things work out in the end, that you can work through that darkness and then make things better, right? And of course, there's the science fiction aspect of it and all the other things that are really obvious that I don't feel like the need to discuss. And I feel this film does have all those things. But what I find fascinating is a few choices were made to really put this film out there. And a lot of them were risky. And in my opinion, basically all of them succeed. Let's go over these choices in relative order of importance. First of all, spoiler alert, in three, two, one, they destroy Vulcan. Now, the destruction of Vulcan Vulcan was a very bold move. Let's ignore the fact that Spock could see the destruction of a planet from a moon. That's ridiculous. Let's just ignore that. Vulcan is destroyed, and the Vulcans themselves become effectively a, you know, an endangered species. It is possible, but if they, they may not have the population enough left to actually sustain themselves as a species. That was a huge game-changer and something that was very big and really helped dis- distinguish this timeline from the previous one. And I feel that was a, the move that actually succeeded and helped to make this, this new timeline feel like its own timeline, distinct, separate from the original one. That brings me to my next point. This is still continuity with the rest of Star Trek. This is the weirdest example of this I've ever talked about. Because I've talked about reboots and reimagining several times before, but this is not a reboot. And this is not a reimagining, even though it basically is both in virtually every way. But Star Trek is unique enough to allow this kind of thing to happen. See, what we have here is an alternate timeline that actually happens as a result of the original timeline, the rest of Star Trek. The connections to original star trek help validate this this film in several ways let me give you a a bit of example what i'm talking about one of the reasons a lot of fans were so upset when disney said star wars is no longer continuity yes i know it's just the eu but i mean let's be honest with those we got the eu and then we got the movies so all of this is no longer continuity because all that investment all that time all those characters all those stories everything we liked about that gone so what they were telling us was all of that, you know, thanks for your money, thanks for your time, goodbye, we're starting new stuff, if you want to see the new stuff, completely wiping the board clean, right? And that can be seen as a good or a bad thing, but myself and others uh, like me saw it as a bad thing, saw it as an insulting thing, to be blunt. This movie looked at that and said, why don't we use that as a strength? The original storyline still exists. In fact, we're even going to add to the original storyline. The idea that the Romulans and Vulcans were close enough to actually have diplomatic relations. And there's a few little tiny tidbits that help flavor out that setting. Including one extremely important tidbit that was supposed to be mentioned in the show. I'll talk about the show in a little bit. Um, And Star Trek Online has taken and run with it in the original thing. In fact, for all intents and purposes, Star Trek Online is the current Star Trek thing in the original continuity. And then we've got this continuity going. And the two still connect. Why? Well, because of Spock. And time travel, and the way that Star Trek has always established its time travel... Well, okay, that's a lie. In many cases, Star Trek has established that when you do time travel, you you literally create an alternate timeline rather than, you know, e- altering the original timeline. Uh, that's not always true. It is worth noting. Um, <clears throat> time zero comes to mind. But anyways, the point being that doing that was a great way to go back and basically start fresh, but not invalidate everything that happened before and still have connections to the original storyline. And again, Spock. Now let me be blunt. The addition of Leonard Nimoy to this movie was crucial. In fact, I think this movie would be lackluster at best if it wasn't not for his inclusion. No, it's not because I'm a Spock fanboy. No, it's not because I'm a diehard Star Trek fan. No, it's not because I'm some kind of raving dork or, or nerd or whatever who's like, nah, it's not the original and therefore it's not good. I don't think like that, and you guys know that. No. The reason Leonard Nimoy's introduction was critical for this film is because Leonard Nimoy is a damned good actor. The fact that he's Spock is almost incidental to that. Now, that does help, the fact that he's Spock, because it helps validate, again, that connection to the original Star Trek, and it helps kind of keep the the original story going, going in its own way. But the really important part here is the fact that Leonard Nimoy does in many ways what I believe Alec Guinness did for a New Hope. He adds a sense of gravity to the film, a sense of weight, a sense of... <sighs> okay, let me talk about what I mean here, because I, I feel this is worth talking about. There's a reason science fiction has been so often associated with the concept of a B-movie. Now for a little bit of a history movement, listen, back in the time they used to do double and triple features in theaters because getting movies to theaters used to be a lot bigger of a hassle and more costly than it is nowadays. So if you went to the theater and if movies were going to be put on a theater, they wanted multiple movies at once. A nice full-length feature, that's the A film, and then a shorter, eh, it's just kind of enjoyable, let's watch the fluff, B film. The B films were always cheaper and were always designed to be just kind of, a lot of exploitation films were there and a lot of science fiction was there. That's why science fiction had been associated with that kind of schlock for so long. Because that's how it kind of got it started. Uh, It starts, excuse me, in film. It wasn't until much more recently, uh, within the last like four decades, that science fiction has really been uh, acknowledged as a valid thing to actually have serious dramatic storytelling. But that's my point right there. I've argued that Star Wars was the beginning of science fiction being really acknowledged as serious storytelling amongst the cinematic people, not us. You know, a lot of us have thought about this some time. But amongst the actual people who make these films, it wasn't until Star Wars, again, this is just my opinion as a a film geek, that that they really started opening their eyes and saying, oh, we can actually do this kind of stuff. And of course, then there was the science fiction boom of the 80s that happened immediately after that. But I mention this because I've often felt that one of the biggest reasons for that wasn't just, you know, I I mean, I talked about Star Wars A New Hope and why it succeeded and all that fun stuff back then, but Alec Guinness really helped add that feel of gravity to the film. It's like this. If you had the same script of A New Hope, but it was portrayed by actors who weren't really putting their best on and didn't have Alec Guinness there encouraging others to, to act seriously, to act as if this is a real, serious, I'm actually trying to be in character and do a serious drama film. So it was just kind of, oh I, oh, I don't know, you know, that kind of a thing. I think A New Hope would have flopped. It would have been just like any other B-movie. In fact, it probably would have been like Flash Gordon, which is ironic for those who know why. So, I feel like we have a similar situation with 2009. This movie has Leonard Nimoy really putting his acting chops in there. He does a lot of subtle stuff with his expression and his posture and the way he's talking. He really puts a lot of weight behind his performance, and it really, even though he's only in like a few, a small handful of scenes in the film, it adds tremendous value to the film. Not because of Spock, again, even though that is valid, but because of Leonard Nimoy. You see the distinction here? And, of course, there is no denying that seeing Spock, our Spock, come back really helped flesh out the film. But I feel like there's another reason for that other than, oh, it's Spock. And that is, this is Spock's film. More than any other of the films, really, this is the film all about Spock. Kirk is not the main character of this film, at all. In fact, I would argue he's, he's actually more of a tertiary character. I know, I know, that that's debatable. But Spock's story is integral and crucial and at the very heart of this entire thing. And it is literally Spock's story. We actually, ironically, see it presented in a way that's quite clever, if not for the fact that it was so obvious, What do we see when Spock is there as a child? We have two uh, other Vulcan childs who, you know, tease him, make fun of him, as was mentioned all the way back in Journey to Babel. And so they mock him, and he actually responds in a way that they weren't prepared for. He physically assaults them. You notice that they were just completely shocked by that attack. Nobody even knew how to deal with that attack. And that makes perfect sense, because to a Vulcan... That's not how you respond to those kind of allegations. Another Vulcan would have just said, would have just, with the same calm, detached assholery, been like, "Oh, well, your mother is blah 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 blah," you know. But Spock's not a Vulcan. He is a half Vulcan, half human. So he retaliated with violence, which they didn't know how to deal with. What's the next thing we see with regards to Spock's character? He's being accepted in one of the most prestigious posts that is possible amongst the Vulcan Science Academy. He is going to be given this great offer, and the Vulcan in charge cannot help but make the comment that it is amazing he's accomplished so much, even though he's not a Vulcan. He doesn't say it that way, but that is effectively what he is saying. You're not a Vulcan, and therefore we are impressed that you have done this well. And he makes a point of pointing out to his mother, too, and this is why it's like obvious and subtle at the same time. Because there's this great implication that's never actually stated. That Spock immediately turns down the offer. And they're all like, "Well, you're just being... A... And it's like, Spock's like, no, no. I'm turning down this offer and I'm going to go to Starfleet. Why is he going to Starfleet? Amongst the Vulcans, he will always be that mongrel. It is only amongst other humans that Spock can be perceived as Vulcan. Which is how he identifies And yet, the arc that he goes through over the course of this film, which again is helped by old Spock, our Spock, is the fact that he comes to grips with the fact that he's not Vulcan. This is the same character arc that Spock went through when it came to the first six movies. I talked about this back then. It's just truncated quite a bit. He comes to the realization that it's okay to be the hybrid. It's okay to be himself. He may identify as primarily Vulcan, but it's okay to have feelings, to express them, to actually... Feel. there's this great scene where he's down there and he's just trying to deal with this and his father comes down and talks to him. And I'm not going to summarize the whole scene, but the bottom line is, it's clear that what's is tearing Spock up is not the fact that, you know, his mother's dead, even though that's horrible. It's not the fact that he lost control, although that's part of it too. He's tearing up because he's like, I should be a Vulcan, damn it. I should be in control of myself and this is who I should be. And as his father talks to him, he comes to realize that there's nothing wrong with feeling. That there's nothing wrong with being angry. That there's nothing wrong with being himself. And he comes to that, real, and that's when he regains his confidence and comes up and, and is actually willing to be like, okay, let's do this. And then helps and assists the plan in bringing Nero down. It's also great, the scene where Zachary, uh, Zachary Quinto, I can't, I, he's a, he does a great job of acting as Newspock. I want to give the man huge props. Um, he, uh, I just can't remember his name. He meets uh, Leonard Nimoy, Old Spock. The two Spocks encounter each other. And it's actually a really, really great scene because what we see in Old Spock is the man who already completed that journey. He already is comfortable with himself. He already knows he's the hybrid, and he's been okay with that for centuries. Then we have young Spock, who has has to have that little bit of a push because what we have is a unique logical paradox. Spock who is, at the very least, part Vulcan, has to stay behind and take care of the Vulcan people, who are now an endangered species. But it's okay, because Spock ha- doesn't have to do that now, because Spock will do it instead. You see how that works? Leonard Nimoy's Spock moves in and, and solves the dilemma for him. It's actually a very quiet sort of a uh, Kobayashi Maru. So that new Spock can still go out there and live his life. And that's the gift that old Spock gives him. Old Spock will stay behind and take care for their people, So that new Spock can go ahead and make a life for himself. And that's how Spock's character develops over the course of the movie. So again, it's very focused on him. By contrast, what we see in Kirk is a little bit different. We see in Kirk... uh, A smug bastard. I'm going to be in a weird position here because I hate and like this for exactly the same reason. It kind of probably balances out to be a net neutral, net zero. But it's like this. In Kirk, we see someone who is arrogant, pompous, smug, overconfident, all that stuff. And yet the movie goes out of its way multiple times to show us that he is just as smart and capable as he thinks he is. That he is that good. This is an important distinction because the original Kirk we always saw under Shatner, especially when he was at his best was someone who was that good. He could think his way out of a situation. He could maneuver his way. He could rely on his wits or his cunning, flying by the seat of his pants kind of a situation. Wrath of Khan was a great example of this. We saw in the original Kirk someone who outmaneuvered and out, out, calculated and outbeat the genetic Superman, right? Now, granted, that, he didn't do that alone, but that, that is important to make note of because that's Kirk. He's, he is confident, not arrogant, but the young Kirk is exactly what I just, I just gave it away in my sentence. He's young. Remember what old Kirk, you know, the, the Shatner Kirk, went through. He went through his crew dying to that horrible creature on planet I forget the name of. He went through the, the mutiny. He went through the situation where uh, so many people were killed by, the, uh, by Kodos the Executioner. He has gone through so many horrible things. That Kirk, even before we ever saw him on the screen, was already seasoned tempered one of the youngest captains to ever enter starfleet and yet he'd already gone through so much at that point in time so that kirk has learned to put it bluntly to grow up his confidence is still there but it except when he's written badly the arrogance doesn't surface there's no smugness there's no superiority there's no jackassery it's just the confidence that remains Makes sense? So what we see in young Kirk is the Kirk who has not had those terrible experiences yet. And indeed, it's actually arguable that by the end of the film, a lot of that smugness and a lot of that jackassery has been burnt out of him, because of the incredibly trying times that he just went through through the course of this film. Uh, We'll see that that's not really true when we come to the next film, but whatever, moving on. (laughs) I'm not considering Into Darkness into this at all, because 2009 deserves to be considered on its own, in my opinion. Um... So that's Kirk, basically. So again, I get that, and I get what they were doing with that, and I get how his presentation is that. The reason I hate it is because I want to smack him every time I see him on the screen, because he's just being such a prick, you know? It's, I, I feel like this is probably how a lot of my own viewers feel about my performance of Matthew over on the Fallout roleplay. He's just a prick. Hopefully we're going to we're grow over the course of the Fallout roleplay, so I can stop portraying a role that's so difficult for me to do. I keep having to do retakes because it's hard for me to portray someone that much of a jackass. But anyways, I'm not that good of an actor. I've talked about this before. But there's a third character I really want to talk about, and that's Uhura. Now, call me in the minority, but I think her relationship with Spock makes perfect sense. In fact, I am honestly astonished it never came up in the original series. Let me explain why. You'll notice there's only really been a communications officer in the old Trek. None of the new stuff has ever had that. That's kind of indicative of the actual naval corollaries between Starfleet and real life. Because, you see, once upon a time, someone who actually was very skilled in knowing languages on the fly, someone who could hear a tiny signal amongst static, or otherwise, was very valued. And then technology got good enough so that Not only could tech do that for you, but the ability to hear a message hidden in static was not as valuable. You get how this goes, right? Technology has advanced, so those kind of things aren't really what they used to be, right? So it kind of makes sense that once upon a time, someone who was that good was a necessary component of a starship. I really also like the idea... In my opinion, I've always had this mental impression, this mental interpretation, and feel free to tell me that I'm an idiot on this one, that Uhura was very smart very disciplined, and very intelligent. I know that I said smart and intelligent, but those are different things in my opinion. Intelligence is the knowledge as I'm defining it. Smart is the a way to... Uh, this is hard to describe. Uh, smart is more like... Cunning is actually probably a better way to... A way to uh, be able to use the, the, her intelligence in the right situation in the right way. So, she, in, in D&D terms, she had a high int and a high wisdom. Let's put it that way. It's a much simpler way to describe this. Um, that's always been my impression of her, like ever since the original series and throughout the movies. And so I like that they portray Uhura in this movie as exactly that. Very competent, very smart, top of her class, in many ways better than the actual communications officer on the Enterprise, right? and incredibly uh incredibly driven. I mentioned though that this is r- this this with relation to their relationship because that makes sense, doesn't it? Spock, the hybrid who does feel, who is very driven and very intel- intelligent and and incredibly is a genius literally. Remember Spock's not just smart because he's a Vulcan, okay? Spock's smart because he's Spock. He is a genius by Vulcan standards. Okay, not just human standards. So we have that kind of a person with someone who is equally as, well, at least relatively as intelligent in her own separate fields and brilliant and just as driven as he is. It makes sense to me that those two personalities would actually gel well together. And I like the way they portray this. And I just, again, want to give props to Zoe Zeldana, who plays Uhura, because I feel she completely nails the role, completely nails it. it, it she, I, no offense to Michelle Nichols, who does a great job as well. But Zoe Zeldana just perfectly hits that that blend of a female protagonist who is very strong, very intelligent very driven, and it still is a, a capable of showing a softer side. You know what I mean? The scene where she consoles him after the destruction of Vulcan is powerful, and it's all but down to the actors knowing what to do with those roles, so again, props now I'm not going to talk too much about the other major characters you know bones uh Sulu, Chekhov, Scotty. <laughs> Scotty's awesome. That's all I'm saying about that. Scotty's always been awesome. Let's be true. But Simon Pegg, I feel, really nails that awesome of, of him. I really do. Um, he just. And it's worth noting that Simon Pegg, for those who you not know, is a pretty huge Trek fan. So I think uh, that helped him to really put that into his performance. But moving along. I do want to talk about one other thing I like about this movie, though it's a bit of an ensemble piece. This is without question Spock 's story I think i 've already shown my work on that one, but each character has at least one scene where they are, where they 're the spotlight. the spotlight is on them, and each character has a decent amount of screen time regardless of whether the spotlight's on them or not so they like it, that's it, it does the thing that all the good Trek films in my opinion have done really shows all of the cast members rather than just absolutely focusing on one or two obviously Kirk Spock and uh, Uhura take the take the centerpiece for the most of that, but we do get to see plenty of everyone else, and I like that. I think that's really well done. Now, uh, what, what was I going to... Uh, right, okay, there is one other thing I want to comment on. This script... I, I Okay, <laughs> I don't remember if I've said this or not. Uh, I'm, I'm recording these in a bit of a weird... I actually recorded the Into Darkness video before this one. Um So I'm saying these in weird order, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself here, but I need to make sure this is out there. The two writers, Dumbass A and Dumbass B, who wrote this film, uh, well, they're bad writers. I'm just going to say that. And some people have asked me, why is it I'm much easier on this script than the one in Into Darkness? Two reasons. One, Abrams exerted a lot more influence on this script. He really pushed himself into saying, well, I want this, and I want this, and I want this. And sometimes a director will do this. They have that right. That's that's how directing kind of works, right? Uh, Nicholas Meyer is a great example of someone who does this to great effect. And I feel like that's one of the reasons why things, a lot of scenes work better and overall don't fit the the style of the two bastard writers who are terrible. Um in in this film but there are still quite a few plot holes and quite a few things that basically only happen in service of the plot in this film so why am I easier on that than I am in for example in Into Darkness or Amazing Spider-Man 2 or Revenge of the Fallen because I feel like the overall performance of the actors the presentation by the director the special effects the music the score the, the visual design the visual storytelling everything that this film did helps elevate it enough that I'm willing to forgive the flaws. I've said this a trillion times, so forgive me for the repetition. All entertainment works are flawed. FF6, my favorite game of all time, is a flawed game. The only thing that distinguishes in anyone's mind between something that's good and something that's bad is the good thing has enough positive elements so you're willing to accept the bad. This is true with games, books, movies, theater, music, art, it's all the same. There is no such thing as a perfect piece. It all has flaws, and we're just willing to accept those flaws because the good outweighs it. So that's that's what that's my opinion here on, on 2009 in a nutshell. I feel like the good of this film outweighs the obvious flaws in the script. So I'm not really going to talk about the flaws in the script, like the way that they that Starfleet security is dumb, and the way that a lot of things happen completely by coincidence, and the fact that Nero's disappearance makes no sense, even if you take into account the, uh, the, the deleted scenes. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to accept that, because what we got was a movie that was really enjoyable for me. But I do want to talk about Nero really briefly, because I've noticed almost no one else has talked about him as a character. And it's obvious why. Uh, no offense to Bana. Uh, Erica Banna or Eric Banna, I can never remember who his name is. But anyways, no offense to the man, but with the exception of one scene, I don't really feel like he's a strong villain. I'm not going to say he's a dumb villain. We've seen dumb villains in Star Trek. We've seen quite a few, actually. But I, I feel like he's a very weak villain, and I'm not sure why that is, because what we have is the makings of a very strong villain. We have a man, and this is all expanded on the comics, which are leading up to the film, by the way, who was part of the worker class, the mining, uh, minor people, and he actually had uh, the ability to speak before the Senate, the Romulan Senate, and he was uh, fully on Spock's side, you know, we need to evacuate, we need to prepare for this horrible disaster that we know is coming, blah, 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 and we need to deal with this, we need to deal with that. Oh, that's right, I need to talk about the supernova thing, too. Um, and he put his faith in Spock. He Spock insisted, let me go to the Vulcans, let me get this thing fixed, we will save your planet. And so he put all of his support into Spock, and then Spock went to the Vulcans, and the Vulcans were like, meh, screw those Romulan guys. I'm exaggerating, but that is effectively what they said. And so Spock was sent back, not in time to save Romulus... And then stopped the thing from destroying the entire galaxy. Again, I'll talk about the supernova thing in a minute. Um, Because that does need to be explained. And uh, so what we have is a man who put his faith, his trust in another man, and was betrayed in the worst way possible. Can you imagine what it would be like to watch Earth be destroyed? Because I can't. I know I can't. I would be picturing individuals, because I've talked about this before. This is the Mass Effect 2 thing all over again. You know, that speech Morden gave? I keep referencing this thing, because it's so true. It's the whole statistics versus individual thing again. It's hard for the human brain to wrap itself around the death of multiple billions. But it's easier for the human brain to wrap itself around the, the death of a few individuals. So what we have is Nero looking down and seeing his wife and his children, his friends, his family. They're gone, and there's no way to bring them back. And it's all because he put his faith in someone who failed him. He put all of his work, all of his effort into that, and he tried at the last second to try and salvage them and couldn't because he recognized his own mistake. We have in that the making of someone who is, is driven to revenge past the point of obsession. Someone who could be practically not even a person anymore. Just an embodiment of that horror. And then he's thrown in prison for like 20 years or however long it is. And that's not going to help that. He's he sent he to sent Ruer penthe, if you're thinking specifically. Now, the problem is... <laughs> what we see in the movie is not that. We don't see this driven, barely containable shell of a man. We see a guy who's angry. He wouldn't like him when he's angry. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist it. Um... And he acts like someone who's a child. And I don't mean that like, meh. I mean he's acting like someone who's lashing out. He is lashing out at a public figure because screw him. And he doesn't have any real long-term plan other than screw him. There is no exploration of his motivations. There's no real uh, examination of him as a character. And this is why I see he feels very weak as opposed to an actual bad villain. Because he's just kind of there. And that's it. And I feel like that's a shame. I also want to comment on really quick that the Narada... Writers have since bent over backwards to explain how the Narada is the doom ship that it is, despite being a mining vessel. But as weird as this sounds, the whole Borg thing, I don't think was actually necessary. Really. I feel that 200 plus years of technological advancement is sufficient enough that a mining ship from the Romulans, no less, so military power to begin with, so an armed mining ship could take on an entire fleet of cruisers from 200 years ago, I could totally buy that. Because, keep in mind, the Romulans at the point at which, in the in the future, have gone through two consecutive wars and have done a lot of research and development during those time, Or, or no, I guess actually the Romulans have only gone through one war. Excuse me. So, so the Romulans specifically have only gone through The point is... They have had a huge amount of technological advancement in that period of time, in addition to just being the natural passage of time. So I had no problem believing that a mining ship was a match for all these cruisers of the old Federation. That was to- I was totally with that. Um, I also believed in the idea that it could eventually be brought down because you know it's crew- crewed by a mining crew who probably have no idea how to use their ship tactically or strategically, but whatever. But that's of course uh, explains why how the Klingons were able to capture them. Although it doesn't explain how the ship itself wasn't in Klingon hands the entire time, and why the Klingons aren't now Doom Destroyers of Doom, having twenty years to study the Narada, but whatever. Like I said, plot holes. There are plot holes. No matter if you have the cuts if you have the deleted scene in, there's plot holes. If you leave it out, there's even worse plot holes, because then what we have with the deleted scenes gone is the Narada shows up, and yes, we will get Spock. And then twenty years pass, and then we will get Spock. I, it's it's not twenty years. It's it's a while. It's like eighteen or something like that. But it's a long freaking time. Moving on, just think about what you were like twenty years ago. That, that's a good way to put a, put a perspective in how long of a time that is. Um, where was I twenty years ago? I was uh, I was playing my SNES actually. I'm still going to school, I think, wasn't I? Yeah, yeah, I was still going to school. Doing college. Anyways, point being, getting back to the point, um, let's talk about the supernova. <sighs> okay, first of all, supernovas don't work that way. Let's just get that out of the way. One of the things I've always liked was the original idea that they kept calling it a supernova because they had no idea what it was doing, what it was happening. There are hints enough, even in the movie, even ignoring the, uh, the, the countdown comic that I just referenced, there are enough hints just in the movie to explain that that's not a supernova. And I don't mean like that in the plot hole sense. I mean in the, that feels like foreshadowing sense. And it's no wonder because that was one of the things that Abrams wanted to uh, analyze, uh, to go into in his first plot hook uh, when he was going to do the first Star Trek show, right? He's referenced this a couple of times in interviews. And so let me explain what it actually was. I'm, I'm going to just call it a Nova for the sake of simplicity because I don't know what else to call it. The Hobus star which you'll notice is not the Romulus star, explodes and destroys the Romulus system, and they have to stop it because otherwise it'll be a threat to the whole galaxy. These are the base facts we are given in the movie, regardless of all other ancillary materials, right? But those facts don't quite line up unless you realize that something was artificially done to the Hobus star to make it explode in such a way that it would hit other systems and keep going. Now, what we've learned since then is the original idea was that someone had gone in and affected the star to make it explode. And basically, as it expands, it can, the, the, as the shockwave expands, it continues to absorb more of subspace and more of uh, actual matter in order to fuel the continuing expansion. In other words, it would be actually more accurate to say that the Hobus star doesn't explode at all. The Hobus star is used as fuel for the actual explosion, which is what actually then de- it was going to destroy, at the very least, the quadrant, if not more, of the entire galaxy. Hence the reason why it's a threat to the whole galaxy, because it was just going to keep expanding unless they used that red matter, this brand new uh, Doom material, in order to force the the expansion of the shockwave to stop. Make sense? So that's what that was actually going to be. And it's funny that that's kind of hand-waved away like that, because it was done specifically because that is Abram's style. He's really good at the build-up to the payoff. I'll talk about this in my next film, which I recorded like two hours ago. Um, or I guess it's been like four hours now. Jeez. Anyways, um, He's really good at that kind of thing. He lays a few pieces, and then he lets you p- figure out what you can from them. So it looks like it's a plot hole, but it actually isn't. Because, again, he was doing that on purpose to lead up to something that never happened. Now, Star Trek Online then took that and ran with it and, and kind of continued the storyline there with the Hobus Star and what was going on with that. And we're going to have to live with that because that's basically how Star Trek has continued since we never got that show we were hoping for. Which reminds me. I know I've given a lot of uh, speculation on the Abrams Star Trek show that we never got, and I only really have two facts when it comes down to it. That he wanted the show, and the Hoba star system that I just mentioned. That's it. That's all I got. Everything else is pure speculation. But based on how much effort was put into the new timeline, and how much was going on in the old timeline, I actually have a very strong feeling that the intent was to have a a show that spanned both timelines and therefore con- included both in its overall proceedings. And I'd just like to say that that sounds freaking awesome, and I would have loved that. And screw you, CBS, you bastards. <sighs> Here's hoping we'll get renegades, right? Yeah, right. So, um, where's my notes? Uh, here we go. Hang on. Oh, where was I? Where was I? Okay, so I talked about that, I talked about that. Uh, I haven't even been looking at my notes for most of this because I've been reciting this in my head uh, for a little bit now. If it's not obvious, I actually watched 2009 and Into Darkness back to back before I sat down and recorded because I really wanted. One of the things I wanted to analyze is why I like 2009, even though I I, I despise the script of Into Darkness, uh, given the fact that the same men worked on the script. And I've already given you the answer to that. Uh, one other thing I want to talk about with 2009 really quick. The conclusion of 2009 feels like a natural lead-in into a show. Now, I've already kind of mentioned that. But I mentioned that especially because, it, from what we understand, there was always a, a requirement to do another movie. Abrams was contracted to do the second movie, right? That was from the beginning. He signed that contract. So, I find it interesting that Abrams basically did it in a way that this movie could be seen as a pilot, even though he knew he would be doing another movie. But I think that actually still makes sense, because if you look at it construction-wise, what we could have had was 2009 begins the show, and then the show continues for a bit, and then you know, Into Darkness inter, you know, happens, and then the show keeps going from that point. In other words, sh- uh, movie, show, movie, show, same timeline, same continuity, right? This is hilarious in hindsight, because this was something that he was pushing as an idea, and I've, I've seen a few things about this, uh, that was basically rejected for being infeasible. I mention this because this is hilarious for two reasons. One, because the the Marvel Cinematic Universe has done exactly that with the S.H.I.E.L.D. show and a few other shows. Well, Daredevil comes to mind. Um, but the second reason it's hilarious is because Marvel has now said, well, now that's infeasible. It's, it's too much to keep up with, so we're going to try and separate the shows from the movies more, which is just, huh? It was working! Why? Why? Eh, I, I guess I don't have much else to say. I encourage you guys, as always, to share your comments. I still like this film, personally. It has some pretty bad flaws to it. But I like what they did with Spock. I like what they did with Uhura. Oh! I knew I had one more thing to talk about, which I should have written down. Let me address something, okay? Action does not make or break a movie. Okay? Now I'm one of those people who likes character-driven, serious, dramatic pieces, and I've made this clear. I liked Star Trek II, I liked Star Trek VI, I liked you know, Empire Strikes Back, etc. Right? Action, how action? I I, I've seen too many people, especially film snobs, and I'm going to call it that way, who think that just because a film has action, it is therefore less worthy of consideration. Or, for example, I've heard the argument that the only people who the only people who like Star Trek 2009 are people who just like the big dumb explosions and the action. Pnof, Uh, Every time I see those people, I smack and smack and smack! Um, then I've seen the other side of that argument. That the people who dislike this film are only saying they dislike this film because it's not the original. Because it's different and therefore it's ruined! Both of these people are dumbasses who have no validity in their arguments whatsoever. There may be people out there who think that, okay, I like this film because of the action. And there may be fil- people out there who dislike this film because it's not the original. That may be valid. I have never met anyone who has either of those opinions. I have, pe- I have met people who are... Oh, oh, what's, what's the term for that? Oh, that's right. They're frickin' human beings who have varied opinions based on la- massive amounts of input that don't just make one-off decisions because... T-ing! Oh, hang on. This switch was pulled and therefore I must hate and or lo- uh, love this thing. No. We're people. People who like this film like this film for their own reasons. And I've heard dozens... People who dislike this film dislike it for their reasons, and I've heard dozens there too. So, I just wanted to address the idea that I'm not against action in Star Trek. In fact, I actually like action, especially when it's done well in Star Trek. In fact, if I could be blunt, some of the only scenes I actually liked in Into Darkness were the action scenes. There's a few good character pieces, I'll talk about that next week. But... I have no problem with action being in my Star Trek. As long as it's still Star Trek. That's really my only thing. I still want the character stuff. And that's the really stupid thing. is I've heard some people postulate the argument that, well, you can only have character or action. Take your pick. No! You can have both. It's easy. You can have one drive the other and the other fuel the one. <laughs> in fact, 2009, in my opinion, does actually a pretty good job of that. There's some good action in this film, and it really helps drive the motion and drive the characters to what they do. And the characters respond to that action and then push themselves to further action, which leads to more awesome action stuff, right? Is this just me? Am I the only one who thinks this way? So, leave those arguments out the window, because they're invalid, okay? Just, no. No fnarfiness. No hoi polloi. No, okay? Okay? <laughs> last thing I know that's a weird thing to end on but I just wanted to discuss it that's it I got it that's all I got. this is uh, it's been fun. We'll see you guys next time.